Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Before I jump into the book of Genesis, I feel like I need to give you some background information that will help you better understand the stories that we find in Genesis, especially that we find in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Two things I need to talk about are the different source material that comes to be the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible, which are also called the Torah, and a little bit of background information about the creation stories of some of the cultures which surrounded and shared the world with the Hebrew people at the time. So let's talk first about the sources that make up the Pentateuch. There were really four. There's a J source called the Yahwist source, an E source called the Eloistic source, the D, which is the Deuteronomist source, and the P, which is the priestly source. The J source is the earliest. It dates back to the 9th or 10th century B.C. The writings probably began to occur around 950 B.C., which is during Solomon's reign, so during the Solomonic period, and it is the earliest of the sources. This source uses the name Yahweh for God, which in Hebrew are the capital letters Y-H-W-H, from which we get the word Jehovah because of the way the Germans pronounce a a J. And so that's the name we see for God in this source. It most likely started during the United Kingdom under Solomon and continued into the divided kingdoms. And this author was part of the southern kingdom of Judah after the split. This source is responsible for most of the book of Genesis, as well as Exodus chapters 1 through 24 and chapters 32 through 34. The Eloistic source, or E, dates to the 9th century BC and prefers the word Elohim as the name for God until uh, Moses is given the proper name of God as Yahweh in Exodus 3 through 6. This source is also called the Ephraimitic source, It is from the northern kingdom of Israel. This source is responsible for Genesis chapter 22, as well as some other portions of Genesis for most of the book of Numbers and for a large portion of Exodus, including Exodus chapters 25 through 31 and chapters 35 through 50. The J and E sources were joined together fairly early. We believe it happened just after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel to Assyria in 722 BC, and now it is really difficult to decide definitively what might have belonged to either one of those separately. Very often, they're simply referred to together as J.E. There's the Deuteronomist, goodness, I have a hard time pronouncing this, Deuteronomistic source or the D source, which dates to the 6th and 7th centuries BC. There are actually two um, distinct writers or editors here. The Deuteronomist 1 dates to the 7th century and Deuteronomist 2 dates to the 6th century, so about a 100 years apart. This source is responsible for all of Deuteronomy as well as 
almost assuredly Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. The author is most likely from the kingdom of Judah, and scholars believe this book, the writings of the Deuteronomist, would be the book found by King Josiah in 2 Kings 22, around 622 B.C., but the book would have actually been written earlier during the reforms of King Hezekiah that we read about in 2 Kings chapter 16 through 20, or somewhere between 715 and 686 BC. The fourth source is the P, or the priestly source. It dates to the 5th and 6th centuries BC. Most scholars believe that some of the portions of this source were written before they went into exile. Most of it was written during the exile period, and then some of it was written after. And this was the Babylonian exile after Judah was destroyed in 583. The author or authors of this source would have been from Judah. They would have gone into exile in Babylon, and then they would have returned to Jerusalem. This is the latest source for the first five books of the Bible. This source is responsible for the first creation story in Genesis 1, as well as for part of the description of the flood story, the table of nations, the generations of Sham, Genesis 17, and a few other little portions, particularly the genealogies and the portions with information about priests, the priesthood, and worship. This source also gives us Exodus 25 through 31 and 35 through 40, as well as Numbers 1 through 10, 15 through 20, 25 through 21, and 33 through 36. All of these sources have been stitched and woven together at various times by various editors. And this group of editors is referred to collectively as the redactors, as our source. Um, There are a large number of variations to these sources and argument and dispute over which pieces belong specifically to which ones and to the exact dates of the sources. But notice that none of these sources dates back prior to the reign of Solomon. So during much of the events that we have occurring, they are not being written down. They were oral traditions passed down. So they don't date to the time of God calling Abraham. They don't date to the time of Isaac or Jacob or to Moses getting a burning bush and delivering the people out of Egypt or even to Joshua taking the promised land or the times of the judges. It wasn't until they have established the monarchy and in Solomon's time that they begin to say, we should write some of these stories down. There. Okay, so that talks about the sources. Let's talk about the creation stories of the cultures that surrounded the Hebrew people. I want to talk first about the Babylonian creation story. It's called Enuma Elish. It's named for its opening words, just like our creation story is. The book of Genesis, Genesis simply means the beginning because it starts with in the beginning. The first version of this story was found in 1849 by some archaeologists who were uncovering a library in the city of Nineveh. It was written on seven clay tablets, and it describes the creation of the world, a battle between the gods that establishes the supremacy of the god Marduk, and the creation of humans destined to serve these Mesopotamian gods as their slaves. Now, there are various copies that have been found throughout Babylon and Assyria, 
and in many of the Assyrian versions, they replace the Babylonian Marduk with the Assyrian Asher. The composition of the text, however, is believed to go back much further, back to the time of Hammurabi during the Old Babylonian period, which is around 1900 B.C., um, down through 1600 B.C. And there are illustrations of these myths on walls and in carvings that go back to the 16th century. There are a number of parallels with our Genesis stories. Um, and it has led some to conclude that our story is based on these, that we were very influenced. The Hebrew people experienced them when they were in exile in Babylon and then created their own. I think perhaps the better explanation is they are an answer to these. They they say they're going to establish how our God is different from their gods right from the start, from the very creation of all things. Our God has, is different. What they share in common is the beginning as a watery chaos, as a then separation of the waters into heaven and earth, different types of waters, and the seven tablets roughly correspond to our seven days of creation in the first creation story. There are, however, a lot of differences. Um, Their story is polytheistic. Ours is monotheistic. We only believe in one God. There, there is a personification of forces, but yet in ours, God speaks. There's imperative creation. In the Babylonian story, matter already existed, and in ours, it's creation out of nothing, creation ex nihilo, we call it. There's no parallel for Marduk's battle against monsters. But in both of the stories, humans are created from dust and then are imbued with um, some measure of godhood, some part of their gods. It happens in the Enuma Elish with a god's blood. It happens in Genesis with being created in the image of God and then given the breath of life by God. In both, there is darkness and then light. There's a firmament and then dry land. And then finally, there is the creation of man followed by a period of rest. Both of the stories, including ours, were originally written in a language that has a common Semitic root. In other words, both of their language come out of this same former one. Now, this shouldn't really surprise us. We know that Abraham was called out of another set of people to be the beginning of a nation. The fact that his nation's language and the language of the nation he may have come out of is similar, shouldn't surprise us. We also are told in the book of Genesis that all of the world spoke a common language until they tried to climb up to God and they built the Tower of Babel, which is in Babylon. And God caused them to babble in Babylon by confusing their languages and making them unable to to understand one another so they couldn't cooperate on a large scale. Okay. Um, Some say that this is the influence that we got from our interaction with Babylon. Others think there may also be a common ancestor, um, which may have been Abraham um, there. Okay, so let's talk about the Greek creation stories. We don't really think about the Greek and Roman empires as having a lot of influence on our Old Testament and Old Testament characters. We think of it as having its impact on the new. But the oral traditions of the Greeks began with the Minoans and Mycenaeans, and their singers were telling these stories as far back as the 18th century B.C., 
time. Greek mythology changed significantly over time. It, it was malleable to reflect and accommodate their culture. The earliest creation stories used animism, simply assigning spirits to every aspect of nature. These vague spirits eventually assumed human form, um, gained names, and became gods. The most widely accepted version of creation is reported by Hesiod in his Theogony. There's a beginning with chaos, which is a yawning nothingness, and out of that void then comes Gaia, who is the goddess of the earth. And some other some other gods, there's Eros, the god of love, um, the abyss, which is Tartarus, and Erebus, who is the god of darkness. Without any help from a man or a mate, Gaia gives birth to Uranus, who is the god of the sky. She then mates with him, and they produce the Titans, 12 in all, 6 female and 6 male. They then de- declared that there would be no more Titans. However, they go on to bear other create- creatures, including the Cyclops and the Hundred-Handed One. Uranus throws both of these into Tartarus, into the abyss, and this angers Gaia greatly. Furious with him, she allows Kronos to convince her to castrate Uranus. Um, And so this son-against-father narrative is going to become a theme in Greek mythology. Zeus is the son of Kronos, and he is going to rebel against his father. And then some of Zeus's children are going to rebel against him. Interesting that we have the number 12 is significant for us, that we have a Savior born um, of the Spirit and not traditionally by male influence there. Mary is a virgin. But we have a father with the son and a son with the father. Whoever has seen the son has seen the father. There's a creation story around Leviathan that we see mentioned in Job chapters 38 through 41, as well as in Psalms, Isaiah, and Amos. The story of Leviathan is told much more fully in the book of Enoch, which is an extra biblical source. Leviathan is connected to the Canaanite Lotan, which is a primeval monster that was defeated by the god Belhadad. Um, There are similarities to the Mesopotamian Tiamat, who was defeated by Marduk, as well as to many dragon and world serpent narratives. Leviathan is used as a metaphor for Babylon in Isaiah 27, and it came to be a good reference for any large aquatic creature, including sea monsters and the great fish that swallows Jonah. Um, And several Near Eastern cultures have a sea monster, which represents chaos, and then a creator god or a hero who imposes order by force. And that imposition of order is what makes life and civilization possible. In the Babylonian story, Marduk defeats the sea serpent goddess Tiamat, and he tears her body apart and uses the pieces to create the heavens and the earth. The Sumerian creation story also comes into play here more for the way it handles um, the flood than for actual creation, but there are similarities with creation. This story is found on a single tablet, and there are some portions that are missing. We don't have the beginning of the story, but we do have the Sumerian gods creating the Sumerian people, 
and providing for them comfortable conditions. It sounds very idyllic like the Garden of Eden, and the animals and humans are told to procreate and enjoy. The kings then descend from the heavens to found and rule over cities. There's a section missing, and when we were able to pick up the narrative, we find the gods deciding not to save the humans they have created from an impending flood. However, the Sumerian god Anki, who was one of the ones that created, and in a later Assyrian version, an Akkadian version, the god Ea, um, who are all gods of the waters, warn the hero of the story and give him instructions for how to build an ark for he and his family to escape and save some pieces of creation so the world can continue. That ought to sound a good bit like our flood story. Then we have to talk about the Egyptian creation stories. They're a little more complicated because there are four variations to them. But we find these stories dating all the way back to the Old Kingdom, which is 2780 to 2250 BC. They provide the most information and they vary by region. Um, but the world in all of the versions emerges from an infinite lifeless sea um, when the sun rises for the first time and then life begins. The different stories are associated with the cult of a particular god in the major cities. So there's Hermopolis, Heliopolis, Memphis, and Thebes. And in some ways, they, they contain different details, but they really express different aspects of the creation process. In Hermopolis, this creation story focuses on the nature of the world before creation. There are eight primeval gods called Ogdoad, which represent the qualities of the primeval waters. They divide into male and female, represented by frogs and snakes. And when they converge, they create this pyramidal mound that emerges from the water. So a pyramid shape, that's why it's, um, the Egyptians love the pyramid shape. And when that pyramid rises from the water, it releases the sun, which becomes the sun god Ray, and that gives light to the world and makes life possible. Notice the frogs when we have the plagues of Egypt. That's going to show our God has control over the frogs, over their very original gods from the very beginning. In Heliopolis, the Ogdoad were eight lesser gods who were seen as extensions of the god Atum, A-T-U-M, who was a self-engendered god existing within the waters. He manages to evolve from being a single being to multiple beings um, through masturbation. So through ejaculation, he creates others. He creates Shu and Tefnut. Um, these have alternatively been said to have been sneezed and spat into existence um, in one way because masturbation is kind of offensive, but also because these are puns on their names. Shu sounds a little bit like the noise we make when we sneeze, and Tefnut sounds a little bit like the noise we make when we spit. Tefnut. Um, so Shu and Tefnut couple and create another couple, Geb and Newt. And these are the ones that create Osiris, the god of fertility and regeneration, and Isis, the mother or goddess of fertility, as well as Set, the god of chaos, and Nephthys, the goddess of chaos. So you have this ongoing battle between 
creation and fertility, and chaos, as chaos and order struggle. And these nine gods are called the Ennead. Over in Memphis, their story centered on Ptah, the patron god of craftsmen. And like all craftsmen, he is able to envision the created product in his head and then shape raw materials into that product. Um, that was the work of all craftsmen. But Ptah is going to do this with his mind and by his word. He developed the ideas in his heart, which was the Egyptian seat of thought, and they were given form when he named them with his tongue. So he produced the gods and all other things by speaking. Um, this version coexisted with the Heliopolis story. Ptah's speech and creative thought simply caused the formation of Atum. Then there's the story over in Thebes, which claimed Amun, A-M-U-N, was not just one of the eight Agduad, or primeval gods from the other stories, but was the hidden force behind all things. Amun encompassed all. He was said to be beyond the sky and deeper than the underworld. And he created with a sound, a sound that is likened to the call of a goose, that breaks the stillness of the primeval water and causes the Agduad and the Ennead to form. Amun becomes the supreme god of the Egyptian pantheon because all the gods and all the other creators and creation have him as their ultimate source. So to the backdrop of all those things and all those stories, some of which are a little offensive to us, we then are going to have the creation stories and the early history stories of the people of God, which are going to be different. And the Hebrew God, Yahweh, is going to be more powerful than all of these and is going to create all of these things that they call gods and is going to do so in a very wonderful, kind, productive, and non-disgusting way. So knowing the sources that make up the Torah and the creation stories, we will now be ready to jump in to the early stories of the book of Genesis. Thank you. 